Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here. And do you know it's been over 20 episodes since you and I have spent some alone time together? Now, I've had some great guests on, some very entertaining guests on, some very informative guests that we've all learned a lot from, but I got to tell you, I miss it just being you and me through your listening device. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to open up the Scaling Up mailbag, and I have selected questions that you've sent me, and that's all we're going to do today. I'm going to answer your questions that you've sent to me and hopefully get you the information that you've been asking for. So join me for an entire episode of me. Our first question is, can you please tell us more about LSI, RSI, and PSI? Sure. And this comes, I am guessing I had mentioned this on an earlier show and I just didn't go deep enough. So here it goes. What the heck is LSI, RSI, and PSI? Well, I think it's important to frame how they came to be. And the very first one was LSI. LSI is the Longelier Stability Index. And Wilfred Longelier in 1935-36, I think it was, he created a way to predict if the water was going to either precipitate calcium carbonate or it was going to dissolve calcium carbonate. To really get in the mindset of why he did this, this was when a lot of infrastructure in our country was being built and all over the world. And all of these um, municipalities were having issues with either their pipes dissolving or the pipes were getting clogged up and they weren't able to get the water to the customers, to the end users, and no one knew why. So Longelier figured out how can we come up with an equation so we can figure out what's going on with this. And that's exactly what he did. He figured out this equation. So if you're driving, put your hands on 10 and 2. We're going to talk about some math for a second, but I'm going to have this equation on my show notes page, but I want to let you know what it is. So it starts off with the constant 12.3 minus the quantity of the log of the calcium hardness plus the log of the M alkalinity plus 0.02 times the temperature of the water in centigrade minus 0.011 times the square root of the TDS. So if you put all that together and then take 12.3 and subtract what that equation was, you are going to get... A number. Now, that number is the saturation pH. Now, what that means, it's the pH at which we are not dissolving calcium carbonate and we're not depositing calcium carbonate. Now, you know. Well, let's go a little bit further. Then we have LSI. So, Longelier came up with that stability, I'm sorry, with that saturation equation. But then he made it a little bit simpler so us common folk would understand exactly what it was talking about. LSI, the Longelier Stability Index, is the actual pH of the water minus the answer to that equation that we just did. And it's going to give you a number between negative three and positive three. 
Now, zero is stating that we're neither depositing or dissolving calcium carbonate. And anything above zero means that we're going to deposit calcium carbonate. Anything below zero, we're going to dissolve calcium carbonate. Now, notice I didn't say the water was either scaling or the water was corrosive. I know a lot of us have heard that in our careers. That is not correct. All water is corrosive. We call water the universal solvent. With water and anything else, given enough time, water will win. So this is not an indices that tells us whether we are scaling or corroding. It's telling us if we are either going to deposit or dissolve calcium carbonate. Then if we move up, we've got RSI. And when I say move up, I don't mean one's better than the other. It's just up on my notes page. Uh, RSI, the Risner Stability Index. And then what that is, is that's two times the saturation pH. So that long equation that we did, we're going to multiply that by two. And then we're simply going to subtract the system pH. Now that scale is between one and 12. Six is in the middle. Anything above six this time, we're going to dissolve calcium carbonate. And anything below six, we're going to start depositing calcium carbonate. You know, when somebody wants their name on something, they've got to, they got to put their own spin on it. So that's the spin that we have. And then we have PSI, which stands for either the Pecorius Scaling Index or the Practical Scaling Index. Now, Paul Pecorius, I hope you are a member of the Scaling Up Nation. Because when I teach the math portion for AWT, when people are getting ready to either take their certified water technologist test or they just want to learn some more information, I go through math in a way that I explain every single equation that's up there except for this one. So here's what the PSI says. It's two times the saturation pH, just like RSI. But now instead of subtracting the system pH, we're going to take the pH of equilibrium. And this is the equation that I don't know where it was derived from. So it is 1.465 times the log of the M alkalinity. You get that number and then you add 4.542, that number that you got. And you get a number that's between 1 and 12, just like RSI, and we're going to read it just like RSI. The question I always get is, which one is better? And I know I answered this on a previous show, but every time I talk about this, people always want to know which one is better. Folks, they're all the same. They might have a little bit of, uh, of, of urgency on how much it's scaling. If you listen to a previous episode, I do a spot on impression of Colin Frayne. And he tells us that if once, if LSI is scaling, then RSI is going to tell us it's really scaling and PSI is going to tell us it's really, really scaling. So go back to that previous episode and hear my spot on impression of Colin Frayne. But that's what he says. And I like that definition. So I stole that from Colin. Thank you very much for that. And that is LSI, RSI, and PSI. There are very different ways that we can do that. Now, if you have a graphing calculator or scientific calculator, you can put those uh, numbers 
in there and you got to do them in the right order. And you can do this longhand. You can do it on your calculator. But most of us are either accustomed to the 1960s technology, which is the slide rule. And if you've ever been to any AWT function, you've gotten one of those slide rules. Or you might have come into this century and downloaded an app for that. And there's a ton of apps out there. You might have written your own Excel equation. How do you write your Excel equation? Well, you're going to take that formulation that I just gave you, that calculation that I just gave you, and you're going to plug it into Excel and then have various cells where you can chart your information. That's what somebody did when they created the app and made it very easy for you. That's what it is. I hope that makes a little bit more sense. And I hope that you can start using either LSI, RSI, or PSI to give you a better look of what's going on in your system when there are no products in the system. Now, keep in mind, it does not take into account that you have corrosion and scale products in there. Corrosion products aren't going to do us much good here, but we're putting products in there that are going to extend the threshold of when things are going to come out of solution. And that does not come into play in that equation. So why use it? Well, it gives us a worser case scenario. And most people use this for product selection. If I run the LSI or RSI or PSI on the concentrated up water, I can then see what I can expect. And then that will allow me to find a better product in my line to handle what's going on with that water. This listener writes, Trace, thanks for all that you do. I really want to go to AWT functions, but my boss is not a member. How do I get to go to these AWT functions not being a member? And how do I convince my boss to become a member of the Association of Water Technologies? I got to say that's unfortunate of being a past president of the Association of Water Technologies, being involved on the educational committee, and just being a member of AWT for so many years, I can't imagine not being a member of it. And the only reason that I can think that your boss doesn't see value is because nobody sat down with him and told him, business owner to business owner, all the great things that you get from AWT how it allows us to make our business better because all of us are giving information to the organization based on mistakes that we've made, things that we've learned out in the field that we've learned in business. And we're trying to make the entire industry better. Why wouldn't you want to be a member of that? So I, I don't think the right person has ever spoken with your boss and, and by all means, you know, invite them to, to email me. I'm happy to be an advocate for AWT. But as far as you not being able to go to technical trainings and conventions and things like that, because you're not a member, that's not actually true. It's just going to cost you more money to go because you're not a member. So if you go on awt.org, you can go to any of the events. We're going to have some technical training events coming up early next year. You are more than welcome to attend that. It's just the non-member price probably will pay for your membership. So you might be able to get him to decide it's a good idea for that. AWT.org will get you to the website. And then as far as the tabs up top, the very first one is membership. 
It will tell you the benefits of membership and it will tell you there's an application on there. It tells you absolutely everything that you need to do. Again, I just can't imagine as a business owner. So I'm in the same position as your boss. And if I was saying, I don't even know how much it is. It's, it's not a thousand bucks. Um, it's lower than that. I'm paying much more for organizations that we're getting far less from, but I do it. Uh, so our company has representation at those. AWT just gives me so much information. I, I would be at such a loss if I did not have that membership. So I don't think he has the right information. I don't necessarily think he's cheap. I just don't think he sees the benefit from that. So uh, hopefully this helps. Like I said, if I can help personally, let me know. Contact AWT. Angela Pike is the uh, membership director there, and she can she can definitely help you with some information with that. My advice will be don't give up. Sit down with them and say what you're getting from this show and what you want to continue to get and why. You know, if I go to a training like this, this is going to help me become a better water treater. And then I can bring that information back to this office. And I would like to teach one or two or three of the things that I've learned there. So we all get value from it and start maybe selling it in that way. Once you do that, he's going to think, wow, I'm never not going to send this person to wherever they want to go again, because they really take it seriously. It's not just the fact that they want me to throw money at something. I'm getting value for that. So hopefully that helps. Don't give up and let me know how I can help. This next person writes in, Trace, thanks so much for sharing the tip of adding one drop of EDTA first to the hardness test kit when you have iron issues. Says they've used that a lot and they want to know, do I have any other tips like that? Well, first off, you're welcome. That was something that it wasn't mine. I learned that from Frank LaCrone. And he learned that because all these people were calling in and saying that his test kit wasn't working properly. So they figured out what the actual issue was and went back in their lab and came up with this technique. And he shared that at AWT. A previous uh, question was uh, their boss didn't see value in AWT. Well, if, if you didn't go to that AWT, you wouldn't have gotten that value out of it. And I've received, uh, I received a letter saying that that's helped somebody out. All right. So I'm, I'm back on another question when I should be on this question. The question is, can I share other tips? And I certainly can. Uh, I'm trying to think of some that I can share with you, but while I'm thinking, so I'm stalling for time, I am going to advise you to get to know your tests. And the best way to do that is to look at your procedures and study your interferences. Now, you might not have information on your company's procedures because maybe somebody just rewrote procedures to make it easy for you to read out in the field. So I want you to go to www.hach.com forward slash water analysis handbook. Sorry, it's it's W A. H. So forward slash W-A-H. And if you search Hawk Water Analysis Handbook, that will come up. And every test that Hawk makes and their full procedures are listed there. And what I would do is pick out the ones. Now you'll have to, it, it basically you select something and it gives you a PDF to download. 
you're going to download all the PDFs of the tests that you have. And the first thing you're going to notice is there's going to be a procedure there and it's probably different from what you're running. Don't worry about that. If it's the same type of test, it might just be using Hawk reagents and not Taylor reagents or not uh, another company's reagents. You can still use that. And, and the great thing about those PDFs is in the back, it tells you every single interference that they know of that can create a problem with your test. Look at those and then go back and figure out is one of those in my system? And then how can I get rid of it? So here's the tip that I'll give you. When you find one of those, how are you going to get rid of it? Well, you can't get it out of the system, but you can figure out how much is an issue. And normally it says, you know, iron might be three parts per million or above. So if it's that and you've got more than that, you can dilute the sample. And from that sample, you, you're now testing less uh, of, of the actual water that's, that's creating the issue. And you can run your test hopefully without any problems. Then you just have to remember whatever you diluted it to, you've got to add that back. So if you had a, if it was normally a 20 mil sample and you couldn't run it because of the interference, whatever the interference was. So you brought it up to, um, uh, you know, half and half. So 10 DI water, 10 system water and tested it then. Whatever you tested for, you'd have to, you'd have to multiply back by two because you're only testing half of what's really there. I will say, be careful with this. If you are sloppy on your procedures and your measurements, this is where your margin of error is going to multiply greatly. Because if I'm sloppy with my measurements, I don't have half and half. And now I'm not only am I off on my actual test because my measurements are off, but now I'm multiplying that. And whatever that multiplier is, that's going to double or triple or whatever that error was. So hopefully that is enough. I'm sort of at a blank. I know I've got a lot of stuff that I do. I just can't think of anything. So I tell you what, if you write back in and ask me for a specific test that you're having issues with, I'll try to answer that on the air and I'll give you that one. Next question is, Trace, what should I tell the customer to do prior to a boiler inspection? So for those of you that are responsible for the water treatment for a boilers, probably minimum every single year, somebody is coming in and they're inspecting the internals and all of the safety equipment on the outside of the boiler itself. In a lot of ways, we look at this as our report card on how we are doing for the past year. I would like for us to start looking at it as how the entire team is doing for this boiler for the past year. Because if we're doing monthly servicing, there's somebody else that's there every single day. And hopefully we're working together to make sure we're getting an A on that report card. You can't have one side without the other. So it is collective how well that we are doing. Please educate your customers to this. And hopefully if they're not working with you, that might be a little motivation that allows them to more readily want to work with you. The question specifically says, what do I need to tell the customer to do in preparation for this? So normally what I do is I have them either double or quadruple the blowdown depending on what's going on uh, with the year. The goal with that 
is we want to get all that sludge that's in the bottom of the boiler out before we get all the water out of the boiler. And typically, I tell them not to worry so much about the conductivity that they're concentrating on blowdowns. Uh, I would probably also make a slight adjustment to all of my chemistries, knowing that instead of holding a specific conductivity, we are now going to go way below that and make sure that the boiler's protected during, I like to do this about a week to three days minimum before they're actually going to shut the boiler down. I also add extra polymer during this process, so it will help get all of that stuff through the blowdown line and, and out of the boiler. That's probably the big thing that I'll do with that. And of course, make sure always that they have soft water. Nothing new that you wouldn't always do. I'm just trying to think of some other items that I can give you for advice. When they actually shut the boiler down, they need to prepare for that. And so many times they don't shut it down in time for it to cool and then they expect the boiler inspector, or even worse, me, to get in this steaming hot boiler. And one of the things, I'm not going to talk about the boiler inspection itself, but one of the things I, I like to use during a boiler inspection is a camera. And I don't know if you've ever tried to use a camera in the presence of steam, but you are not getting any pictures. So just make sure that they're given enough time to allow that boiler to cool. Um, and then I've also seen, again, not talking too much about the inspection, but I've seen they've taken something down. They've looked inside. Maybe the, maybe it wasn't getting inspected, but they're having to replace something. And then immediately they introduce cold water to a hot boiler. Please don't do that. That greatly stresses the metal and you can have some really major issues with the boiler if you were to do that. Now, when you're going to put the boiler back online, you need to calculate how much water is going back into the boiler, and all of your products out there have a dosage rate. And what you're going to do is if it's so many hundred gallons, you're going to figure out what the dosage rate is for that so many hundred gallons, and actually put that directly just right on top of the boiler and bring it up. A lot of people will assume that their chemical feed pumps are going to bring that boiler back up to where it needs to go. And those chemical feed pumps, they are there to maintain what is there. So you've, once you're done with the boiler inspection, you're filling it back up with the water, you've got to get it up to what you want to maintain. I hope that answers your question. You specifically asked what you need to tell the customer to reiterate, increase your blowdown, you're probably going to increase the polymer, tell them not to worry so much about holding a specific conductivity. Instead of doing their normal blowdowns, they're going to double or triple or quadruple what those blowdowns are, and then make sure that they have plenty of time to cool that boiler before anybody has to get inside with it. The next question is, do I really need to get my CWT or lead GA? There's some more in this question. They're going in to validate the reasons that they don't need that, but pretty much it's, you know, I've been getting by with it so far. So why do I need it now? My answer is no, you don't need to get your CWT or any certification. But my question back at you is why wouldn't you folks? You have decided to be in a particular industry. Now that industry just happens to be water treatment, but whatever it is, why would you want to be mediocre? 
And you can be a very good water treater or a very good technician at whatever it is that you're doing without certification. But think about what certification is and think about what this show is. The whole reason that I am doing this show is to give you that little extra push to learn something new, to do something a little bit better. And I feel that the CWT for the water treatment industry is the validation that you've done that, that you are better than other water treaters out there because you've done more than they have to prove to your customers, your employers, and yourself that you got this designation. Now, just because you're a CWT does not mean you stop learning, but like I said, it is a, a, it's a way that you can prove to yourself that you learned baseline information among some of the top peers in the organization. As far as the lead GA, lead GA has very little to do with water treatment. Now, there's some in there, but there's not a lot of it. However, the United States Green Building Council is putting, I don't want to say standards because they're not standards, but they're, they're letting their members know that we as water treaters need to do certain things in order for them to get verified, certified, to get the points on their, wherever their equipment is, whether it's a building or, or whatever it is. Wouldn't we want to be at that table for conversation? And if we have a bunch of skilled water treaters that are available to have that conversation with our customers, and we can speak the same language that everybody at that table is because we're talking about getting this building lead certified, now it has value for everybody that's involved. And the re other reason that I think that getting your lead GA is a good idea is because many of us are out of practice with studying. It's been a while since we've been in school. It's been a while since we've taken a standardized test. The lead GA, you will have to study for it because it's got a lot of stuff outside of water treatment, but it's not a difficult study. And it gives you a credential that you can get relatively quickly that you can put on your business card right then. And it's going to give you the confidence to go ahead and start studying for your certified water technologist examination. And you're going to feel good because you say, Hey, I got this lead GA. Now I know what to do. I'm back in the habit. And I am confident that if I put my mind to it, I can get this CWT. So I hope the new question is, is why wouldn't I want to get my CWT or my lead GA? And by the way, on my show notes page, I'll put links to both of those if you want to learn more about those. And I want to thank that listener for that question. This question reads, Trace, when you came up and worked with our company, you said we needed to start running copper and iron on closed loops and cooling towers. Why? Let's back up a little bit. So I'm not going to tell you the name of the company or who wrote this. But one of my favorite things to do is to work with other water treaters so I can learn from them and they can learn from me. And hopefully whatever issue that they are having, we can overcome that and everybody's getting better. In this specific instance, this customer hired me to come up and they're a fellow AWT member to look at their system that they had for this one customer and they did it with the customer. The customer was, was in, uh, in full light of everything that we were doing. 
and I was to go in and try to steal the business from them. Now, not, not really, but if just think if I was going after uh, another account that somebody else had that wasn't me, I would be looking for all these things that I would do better so I could show that I knew more than the other company that actually had the business. So that was the arrangement we had. We went into this customer site and I just started doing my survey and the other company was there and I was asking them questions, of course, so I could get some more information. And I found probably a dozen things that I would have done differently or more importantly, they were actually falling short on. And I don't think that they were, I know for a fact that they were not saying, we're just not going to do this stuff. This account's not worth it. They've had it for so long. They've just, it's the same stuff month after month after month. And when you start seeing problems over and over and over again, you kind of become immune to them. You just don't see them anymore. So that was the big thing that we had here. Anyway, I took all the information that I had and then we went back to their place of business. We looked at service reports and various things. And and like I said, I found about 12 items that they could improve on. And then we worked together to figure out how they could improve on it and how they would know when the improvement was made. And I got to tell you, that's, that's my favorite thing to do when I can do what I do best and, and find problems and troubleshoot problems and teach along the way. I absolutely love doing that. The person in this company was one of the technicians and he wasn't involved in this entire process. He was just involved when I was doing training with this company, basic water treatment items. And then I made some suggestions based on what I found at this and a couple of other accounts of what they could be doing better. And one of those suggestions was to start testing copper and iron in closed loops and cooling towers. So now you have the framework of how this question was posed to me. And the reason was I was not able to look at their service reports and confirm or prove that we were or not having issues. Now, when I ran my own test, I was instantly able to find certain issues because I knew what to look for. And basically, I was just on a scavenger hunt at that time. Are things working? Now I'm going to go test that. And I'm going to run various tests. I'm going to talk to people. Uh, I'm going to look at things. And and then I'm going to get verification of whether it is or it is not. And we were having some issues with some higher than normal corrosion and we weren't running corrosion coupons and we weren't running copper and we weren't running iron. So this show isn't, or this question isn't about corrosion coupons. Everybody knows how I feel about that. If you're not running corrosion coupons in your system, then you're treating your chiller or your heat exchanger or whatever piece of metal is in there as your corrosion coupons. And by the time that tells you something's a problem, you've really got a problem. So corrosion coupons are a little bit more proactive. Copper and iron are what's making up the parts of that system. If we're doing our job well, the corrosion inhibitor should be protecting that copper and that iron. If it's not, we're going to start seeing more copper and iron in the system. And that's just a proactive measure that something is not right. But at least we know we need to start to look for one. So let's say we have high copper, or high iron. The first thing that I would do is I would look and see what our inhibitor levels are. 
If they were low, that might confirm why are those other copper and iron numbers were high. Let's say everything else in the entire system was fine. I would then go and look at the raw water and see what the copper and iron or both or either of those are in the system. And then if they were high in the raw water, well, of course, they're going to be high in the cooling tower. But so many of us don't take enough information from the raw water. And keep in mind, I'm not, I'm not proposing that you run copper and iron all the time on your raw water unless your company has you do that. But the fact that we had a problem on this cooling tower, we now went looking for where it was coming from. And in this instance, we actually had an issue with high iron was coming in from the makeup water and then it was going into the cooling tower. And that was actually creating a problem that all the chemical in the world could not have solved. What we had to do was fix this issue. And in this case, it was actually some bad piping and they were having it in some other places of the pipe. Oh, I'm sorry. They were having it in other areas of the building that were creating some other issues. So the fact that we found this, they were able to do some mechanical work, solve the issue. And it not only solved our issue, it solved the issue of one of their tenants and they were ecstatic. So that's why I say run copper, run iron in the systems that you're treating. And that way, you know, if your inhibitor is working, by the way, that's why you're testing for your inhibitor a lot of people think they test inhibitor to see how much inhibitor is in the system to protect for corrosion. And that's kind of true, but not really. It's how much extra inhibitors in the system. So if we have a residual, we're going to assume that all the other inhibitor has attached its way through this piping system or through to the metal. And now that's added corrosion protection throughout the entire system. Now, what we're testing is not that. What we are testing for is the extra residual because eventually that stuff's going to get used up. It's going to get scraped off the system and there has to be so much in the water available to go back in and repair that gouge of corrosion protection, if you will. So that's what we're actually testing for. So I hope this question gets you thinking, you know, what am I doing to actually validate Am I really doing my job and how do I know that I'm protecting this system? What is ORP? So we all have that controller out there. Maybe we're not very familiar with what the controller does, but our boss said, hey, this is your account, go service it. And we inherited it. We have no idea what it is, but we know there's an extra probe on that controller. And there's a number that looks right at us that says ORP. What does that mean? Well, ORP stands for oxidation reduction potential. Now, it should really be oxidation slash reduction potential. Now, oxidation, if I can take you back to chemistry class, is the loss of electrons and reduction is the gain of electrons. Normally, we will find ORP on a controller where we have a cooling tower where we are feeding oxidizing biocides. And it is simply just telling us how much oxidizing biocide do we have in that system? And is it enough for our program to effectively kill the stuff that's growing into the cooling tower? Now, the higher the number, the more oxidizing biocides we have, the lower the number, the less oxidizing biocides that we have. 
normally in a cooling tower situation, and I say normally, there's no steadfast, this is right, this is wrong. We want to measure ORP above 200 and 250 or so in a cooling tower to give us enough oxidizing biocides in the system. When we get an ORP reading, it's simply a reading of millivolts based on that oxidizing biocide in the substance that we're measuring, in this case, the cooling tower water. Now, normally above 200 is where we are going to start with uh, setting that ORP, and that gives us a, a small amount of oxidizing biocide to put in that controller. Now, how do you know? How do you check it? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to measure either your free or total chlorine, whatever your company tells you to do, and make sure you have enough in that system. Make sure that the system is able to hold that amount. Now, keep in mind, you're going to have a lower amount when you're feeding something off of ORP because that's continual. On a, another system where you're feeding based on time, however you feed it, how, however often you feed it, you're going to put more in because you're going to let that slowly dissipate out until the next feed. Well, that's not ORP. ORP, in my opinion, is a better way to feed that because we have a lower, slower amount that's going to be less aggressive towards the system metal. Oxidizing, you know, it's going to oxidize whatever it is. We want it to oxidate all the microbial stuff in the system, but it's also going to oxidize all that metal in the system too. We can put a smaller amount and hold that smaller amount. That's what ORP does. So whatever your company's uh, recommendation is, parts per million, total chlorine, or free chlorine, measure that and see if you can hold that. In the very beginning, it's going to be very difficult for you to clean up the system on a low amount of oxidizing biocide. My advice is you don't rely on ORP to clean up a dirty system. You do that manually and then you maintain that through ORP. Now, ORP is a measure of the parts per million of chlorine or whatever it is that you're, you're using, the pH. And I think there's also something in the equation that deals with temperature as well. I can't remember the actual equation, but the only way to verify that is to see what the millivolts reading is. That's that ORP number. And then do your test to see if you have enough residual oxidizer in the system and if it's holding that. Now, a lot of people will start to calibrate their controllers and make sure that the ORP is absolutely exact. And you are more than welcome to do this. However, I have not found value in it. I really don't care what the reading is on the controller. What I care is that it's holding constant. If I want a 0.4 free chlorine in the system and it can hold that, I could care less if it's doing it at 200 millivolts or if it's doing it at 400 millivolts. I just want to make sure that it can hold it. Now, if it's all over the map, you might need to calibrate that or you might actually need to replace the probe. But if that's not an issue, don't waste your time with it and move on to something else. So I hope that brings a little bit of sense in what ORP actually is. I want to try to find, I know I've got some charts in my archives that show uh, on a graph, it shows how much parts per million, and this deals with chlorine, what the pH is and what the expected millivolt reading is. 
So you can try to determine uh, either what the millivolt reading is based on those two variables or look and see what the free chlorine parts per million should be based on the millivolts or the pH. I haven't found those to be horribly accurate, but they're close and they're mostly from the swimming pool industry. So I'll try to throw those up on my show notes page, but I hope now you're armed with a little bit more information on what ORP is. This next listener writes, when are you going to have Mark Lewis on? Can you believe that Mark Lewis wrote this question? Now I say, I don't tell who writes these questions, but this once again is Mark Lewis writing in and asking when he's going to be on the show. Now I'm picking on Mark a little bit. We're, we're very good friends. And, and the neat thing about Mark Lewis is we are always challenging each other to be better water treaters. And when I have a question, I'll call him, he'll call me, and we'll try to stump each other all the time. So that's that's why I like picking on Mark, and he picks on me on his own right when we get together. So I don't feel bad about that at all. I will have Mark Lewis on in a very soon episode. So I have no idea what that's going to sound like. I don't know what he's going to say. If you know Mark Lewis, you never know what he's going to say. So it should be a very interesting episode. It should be a good interview. And your guess is as good as mine what we're going to talk about. Because if I ask him a question, I'm sure we're not going to talk about that question. He's going to have his own agenda. So stay tuned and we should be able to get Mark Lewis on. This listener writes in, what is the best biocide for me to use in my cooling tower? Folks, I wish I could answer that question because I would just be so incredibly awesome as a water treater if I could tell you what the best biocide was to use in your cooling tower. To reiterate what Jim was saying, it's a microbicide. So Jim, if you're listening and if you're a fan of scaling up, you've heard the Jim Lukanich episode and he said, we don't use biocides, we use microbicides. I'm in no means making fun of the person that wrote this question. I'm just trying to insert a little bit of past advice that one of our guests gave us. My advice would be go to the AWT member section and download the biocide selection matrix. That is one of the many tools that we have at our disposal that tells us a lot of generic information about every biocide that we could use in that cooling tower. I'm also willing to bet you do not have every single one of the biocides listed on that biocide matrix in your product line. So I would start by looking at that matrix by highlighting the ones that are available to you and then look at how they work. Very simply, biocides work. Uh, if they're a non-oxidizer, they're going to disrupt how it either eats or how it reproduces. An oxidizing biocide is just going to blow it up from the inside out, for lack of better ways of saying that. A lot of programs today are requiring oxidizing biocides because they have been proven to be a better due diligent Legionella prevention program. So that's something you might want to take in consideration also taking consideration, what are the issues that you're having? Is it with algae? Is it with bacteria? Is it just in one spot? Is it all over the system? Uh, what's your evidence that you're solving a problem and then work towards that? And the biocide matrix sheet actually has listed on it what it's good for and what it's not good for. Now, with any 
sheet like that, they're people's opinions. And I will tell you that I disagree with some of the things that are on that sheet, but that doesn't mean it's a bad sheet. It's just someone's opinion on how that works and they get their opinion from their experiences. I've had a different experience on a couple of those biocides for some things that they say they don't work well or they work really well on. Keep that in mind whenever you read anything. Information is good, but it's up to you to go out and prove it to be either correct or incorrect. So I really can't answer the question. If you write in and you're a little bit more specific about what you're trying to do, maybe I can answer that question a little bit better. Uh, but hopefully what I told you, you're able to pull in some information and make some better decisions. And maybe you'll start looking for something that you didn't know to look at before. There was also an article now that I think about it, that Colin Frayne wrote for The Analyst. I'm going to see if I can get permission to put that on my show notes page. So that way, for those of you that aren't members of the Association of Water Technologies, you can see some of the benefits that you are missing out on. And Colin, in this article, did a great job of explaining why you would use certain biocides and what they do and how they work. So let me get permission to put that up. If not, just go to the AWT members only page and search for, I think it was, I don't remember the title and I don't have it in front of me, but search for biocides and that should come up. Biocides and Colin Frayne and that should uh, come up. Thank you for your question. This next listener writes, Trace, thank you so much for putting on the Scaling Up podcast. I've learned so much from it, and I can definitely tell you that I am a better water treater now than before Scaling Up was available to us. Thanks so much for doing that. I, I, I'm, I'm almost speechless. Of course, I'm on a podcast, so I can't be speechless. That's not good for the show. Uh, he goes on to say, You've done so much for us. What can we, the Scaling Up Nation, do for you? And again, I'm, I'm, I think that that is just uh, an incredible comment. It's the reason that I started this show. I want to be that nudge that might push you to do something a little bit better or learn a little bit extra about something that you knew you needed to do, you knew you needed to learn but you just needed that little push to get you there. So this person says that I am doing that and I appreciate you saying that. That validates the whole reason that I'm doing this show. As far as what you could do for me, I want to say it's keep doing what you're doing. Keep writing in your questions because without those, I have very little material to talk about. This entire show was based on your questions. I couldn't have had this show were it not for people like you. You can help me continue to get the word out to other water treaters that we do have this podcast. A lot of people don't even know what a podcast is in our industry. So if you can be ambassadors for me and explain to them what a podcast is and why this is one that they should listen to, that would help. Some ways you can do that is maybe share some episodes. If you go to my webpage, I've got a download link and you can just send those links to people. Say, Hey, this is a, this is a great episode on what we were talking about last week. You know, listen to this. That, that will definitely help as well. Uh, of course, uh, subscribing if you're on iTunes or Stitcher or one of those services that allows me to make sure you're listening to the episodes that I'm producing. And I don't have to tell you to listen to them. They automatically show up on your device. 
continuing to listen, I would say. Let me know what you want to talk about, but just listen to me. If you guys continue to listen, I have an audience. So there you go. And I guess the other thing I was, I was trying to think, what are all the things that we could do? The way I communicate what's going on in the show in between shows is on my LinkedIn account. So if you'll connect with me, uh, Trace Blackmore uh, on LinkedIn, you will get information about that show. I also have a scaling up page on LinkedIn. So that way, you know, when shows are coming out, you know, when they're released. Or if I'm doing another meetup like I did at the convention, you will know about that before I even announce it on the show. Thanks again for asking that question. That's just awesome. Another listener writes in, Trace, can you please tell us what you carry in your test kit? I I feel it was a capital one that says what's in your wallet. So this is what's in your test kit. Uh, I'm actually doing this on memory because I'm, I'm recording this remotely and I don't have my test kit in front of me. So I might miss a couple items, but I think I've got most of them. I've got uh, a Myron L6P. And of course that does my connectivity and my pH. I've got a DR900. That's the, the new spectrophotometer that replaced the DR890. And I've got about minimum 20 vials in there. If you have a DR890 or a DR900, you probably hate it because you're waiting on tests. I don't wait on tests. I know where everything needs to be at a certain time when I'm running things. You've heard on other shows, I try not to think too much when I'm doing tests other than am I confirming or disproving what I'm thinking is going on with the system. And I'm just getting my test done accurately and efficiently so I can start working on the system. So if I'm waiting on one single vial to prepare something else, that takes too much time. So if I've got four systems and I'm running four irons, I'm running four irons at the exact same time. And I just go boom, boom, boom and record that information all at once so I don't have to switch back and forth. I've got a UV pen so I can digest phosphate and I can run azole tests and things that require UV digestion. I've got a digital titrator in there so I can get burette quality testing without having to carry those huge, awkward burettes around. I have an ATP meter, adenosine triphosphate, and a couple of pins that I always carry around so we can measure what the uh, biological loading in the system is via ATP. I have a temperature gun so I can verify you know, what temperatures are. They're great for steam traps. A refractometer so I can test for glycol. Erlenmeyer flask. So a lot of people make fun of me because I titrate an Erlenmeyer flask. I guess that just shows that I'm old school, but I'm really quick at it and I can... I can swirl them really good and not make too much of a mess or any mess, rather, because that's why I use them. They do take up quite a bit of space, so I have to warn you on that. Uh, I always have uh, more sample bottles than I need, and I like to use the 500 ml sample bottles. I don't like running back and forth for more sample. Who cares if you're throwing sample away? But if you've got to stop what you're doing to go get more sample, that's normally a pain. Of course, my trusty channel locks are in my test kit. I have graduated cylinders of both the 10 mil and the 50 mL variety. I've got a syringe in there. The syringe, I believe, is 60 mLs. And I'll use that to measure sometimes because it's a little bit quicker. And I'll also use that if I've got to filter anything out. I've got an immersion heater in my test kit. So if I need to do a heat reversion, I can do that. 
I've got uh, my favorite flashlight, my trusty flashlight, so I can look and see what's going on in the system. Speaking of light, can you think of a worse area when it comes to good lighting than the mechanical room? We're running our test in this mechanical room that could not have worse light. And now we're trying to interpret test results. Well, one of the guys here at Blackmore Enterprises found this really cool folding desk lamp. It's battery powered. It's rechargeable. It's got a USB port that you can charge it up when it needs charging. And it, the cool thing is it folds up very thin. So it goes in the side of your test kit taking up hardly any space. And when you need to bring good light to the party, it unfolds and you can direct it to exactly where you need good light. I'm going to have an affiliate link on my show notes page. So go ahead and click on that. And hopefully that will give you the light that you've been looking for in the mechanical room. And then I've got a trash bag in there, which is no more than just a Ziploc bag that says trash on it. Because I don't want to leave any trash behind. My goal is to leave the mechanical room better than I found it. And if there's a bunch of powder pillows and spent filters, it's just telling that customer that I don't care about his space. So I want to make sure I'm taking everything out that I brought in. And then, of course, my phone is a tool. That's where I'm doing my service reports. It's got my calculator. It's got charts and tables if I need to reference something. And it's got all of the instructions to my tests. Now, I know how to do all my tests, but what I don't know are all the interferences that could happen with that test. So having that document available to me, I'm able to see why am I not getting the result that I'm hoping for or that I think I need to get. If it's an interference, I can then look at the procedure and figure out how to solve for that, whether it's diluting the sample or something else. As far as the tests that I have, and I've got a lot of tests in my test kit, more than any sane person should have. So I'm just going to mention the, the big ones that I have. So I've got an Azol test. Azol is the yellow metal corrosion inhibitor, and I want to make sure I've got enough of that in there. I've got all things alkalinity. I've got tests for P and M and also OH alkalinity. And I like the barium chloride, the separate uh, OH test. I've got some chlorides in there copper, iron. We use total hardness. And then if we need to do something more than that, we'll take it back to the lab and, and we can, well, we've got calcium hardness buffer there and we'll just subtract it to the two to find uh, magnesium. But I found in the field, it's a worser case scenario for total. You know, we, we've never had any issues using that. And there's only so much space you have in your test kit. So for a test or a piece of equipment to make it into my test kit, it's got to do more than one function. It's got to be a multitasker. And I just haven't found a reason to keep calcium in there because I can get by with the total and it allows me to keep something else in there. I've got a phosphate test and I only use orthophosphate and I convert everything to ortho. I'm sure that's a conversation in another scaling up episode. Uh, sulfite, nitrite, silica. And I think that's probably the big ones. Like I said, we've got, I've got some other things in there just because I'm doing some other tests and working with people or uh, trying to validate a, a new product or something like that. Uh, oh, and I've got some DI bottles in there. The largest DI bottles that I could find, I'll fill those up with water and then shake them up. And it's got, uh, it's got all four types of resin in there. And it pretty much just grabs onto anything that's not water. And I use that to rinse. 
and I rent, I clean up after every test that I do or, or my whole series of tests. And I know if I pull a vial out or anything in my test kit, it is clean and ready to use. I don't have to worry ever that part of the test is from the last system that I tested. I make sure that those things are clean and I run those through a special dishwasher that we have that uh, runs on DI water and phosphate free soap every single week. And if we're, if we're doing more tests, we're doing it more often than that. And then also the DI water we use to dilute. So if I have too much of a particular item, say iron, I believe the range of iron is three or 3.3. So if I have an iron of four in a system, I'm not going to be able to read that. So I might want to dilute that in half and then I'll read that and then I'll multiply that answer by two. And that's how I would use my DI water. So there's a look in what is in Trace Blackmore's test kit. The next question, Trace, can you please explain what magnetite is? Magnetite. So I'm assuming that you want more than it's Fe3O4. It's three molecules of iron and four of oxygen. Magnetite is typically what we want to get in boilers when we're treating boilers properly. So if you've ever done a boiler inspection and you're around a real seasoned water trader, they open that boiler up and they want to see nice black or dark gray tubes. Essentially what they're looking at is the magnetite. So in a, in a high pH environment and no oxygen, we should be able to form that magnetite. And essentially what we're doing there is we're inhibiting corrosion by corroding the metal. And I know that sounds really weird. And when I teach corrosion, I always say that and people look at me like I'm crazy, but that's essentially what we do. Imagine if we had a nail and we put it in a glass of water. And I'm sure we've all done this either in chemistry class or as a kid. Eventually that nail it disappears. It's totally dissolved. Water's the universal solvent. Water, given enough time, is going to dissolve anything it comes in contact with. The Grand Canyon is a great example of that. But that nail is too. And that nail is a great definition of active corrosion. Active corrosion means it's going to corrode and the corrosion byproducts that are on that nail are going to slough off and then more are going to form and that's going to slough off. And eventually there's no more left to slough off. The nail's just gone. Active corrosion. It's continuing to corrode. Passive corrosion is what we do. We add something to the environment, to the water, or the water characteristics itself are of a means to promote this passivation. And in this case, we're using magnetite. We're promoting magnetite because it's a very tenacious film on the metal surface that will not continue to corrode. Once it's there, we should be stable. But the issue is, is it's not always going to be there. It's going to slough off as well. And we need to make sure that the conditions around it are of such so we can repair that piece of metal or that piece of uh, corrosion protection back. So we call that passive corrosion. Uh, and that's where passivation comes from. So if you've ever had a new system and that somebody said you have to passivate it, that's essentially what you're doing. Normally that involves some cleaning to make sure the system's nice and clean. And then we're making sure that all the metal in the system is corroded to a point where it's not going to continually actively corrode. 
So I hope that makes a little more sense on what magnetite is. Specifically, that's in a in a boiler in a in pH environment above 10.3. It's that black, dark gray color that is just so glorious whenever you open up a boiler and you see, and you don't see any pitting, you don't see any flash rusting or anything around there, and you say, yes, not only did I do my job, the operators did their job, and here is the proof of it. Well, here's my last question, and this listener asks, when I first started my episodes, when I first started the podcast, I was focused on just water treatment technologies and information on that, and I've spoken on other topics that weren't necessarily testing and troubleshooting, and why was that? Well, I will admit that when I first started this show, I didn't really know what it would become. I have so many more listeners now than I ever hoped that I would, and I want to make sure that one, this show stays fun for you, and it stays fun for me as well. And I thought, you know, what are all the things that I've had to learn in my water treatment career? And if all I had to do was learn how to run my tests, I wouldn't have a full career. I had to learn not only the tests, I had to learn all the things that went along with that. And I had to learn how to work with customers. I had to learn how to sell things. Uh, I had to learn a little bit about electricity, a little bit about plumbing. Geez, the, the list just, just goes on. And then when I became a business owner, as I said on the episode with Tim Fulton, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I had to put myself in situations that were constantly challenging me so I could become better running my business so we didn't run into problems that I didn't know what to look for. And if you really look at it, regardless of if you own a business or not, if you're in charge of an account, that's a business. And if you don't know if it's profitable or not, and you don't know all the ways to gauge how well that account is doing, then you're going to fail. And I have really sought out this information. I read a lot of books and it wasn't easy. So I'm trying to make this podcast where water treaters can come and learn about every aspect that's going to touch them in their career. So if it seems like a bait and switch, I apologize. My goal is to pour my heart and soul into this show. I, I truly enjoy teaching and inspiring people to be better than they were. I think there's so much more than just the mechanics of how to run pinks and blues in an industry like this. So I hope I haven't upset anybody by doing this. I hope I've made the show better. In fact, I've gotten a lot of comments saying how much they appreciate all of the different types of speakers that I have on this show because they learn something new or inspires them to do something. So thank you for your question. It allows me to say something that I probably should have said a while ago. I hope that this show is the place that you come to learn about every aspect of the water treatment business, whether it be testing or profit and loss statements. How about that? If I didn't answer your question today, don't worry. If you sent me a question, I promise you I received it. It just wasn't one of the ones that was selected. And 
that went by ultra quick for me. I'm not sure how the other end felt about that, but I really enjoyed answering those questions. And it's been a while, like I said, since it's just been the two of us listening to scaling up, answering just questions. I don't think we've ever done a show with just questions. So I will do that again. And the reason I'm able to do that is because you are listening to the show and sending me questions on what you want me to talk about. I couldn't have done a show like this if it wasn't for you. So when I say for water treaters, by water treaters, that's what I mean. You guys are telling me what it is that we need to talk about. So if you'll continue that, I will continue to have a show. I just want to thank you for listening to Scaling Up. It's my hope that you enjoy this show enough to tell a colleague about it, and then they enjoy it enough that they can tell someone else about it. You haven't heard me say in a while that a rising tide lifts all boats. I hope that the questions that these individuals have asked during today's show will lift your boat and get you thinking just a little different about some of the things that you're doing out in the field so you will be a better water treater tomorrow than you were today. Have a great week, folks.